I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Carrie Miller. This is The Daily Circuit, now in depth on opening the secrets of a small world. In Azerbaijan, there is a museum devoted to tiny books, many so small you can only read them with a magnifying glass. In Prague, a museum boasts a portrait of Anton Chekhov so small it fits on one half of a poppy seed. Imagine that. And in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, there's an extraordinary dollhouse that inspired Jesse Burton's new novel. It's the story of a young bride in a marriage of convenience who receives a miniature cabinet of her new home. The novel is so entrancing, it would surely even intrigue the late writer Doris Lessing, who said, Small things amuse small minds. The novel is titled The Miniaturist. Jesse Burton joins us this morning from the BBC in London. Jesse, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. Do you forgive the Doris Lessing? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist. What a comment. (laughs) No, it's quite interesting, actually. I think, yeah, some people do have an aversion to uh, shrunken, miniaturized things, and that's fair enough. (laughs) I don't think she was talking about actual miniature things. I don't know, actually, for sure. Uh, Were you someone who was always interested in, in the miniature world somehow? Not really. Um, I, as a child, I had a doll's house, but uh, really not uh, hadn't kind of crossed my path until I went to the Rijksmuseum and saw the cabinet house, and uh, that's when I started sort of being interested again in in you know why people collect dolls' houses, and you know as adults, that's quite interesting to me. Yeah, I, I think the collection of any kind of miniature is interesting too, because you know I, I've been kind of aware of this tiny book collection thing. There's a woman, when I was researching this, I discovered there's a woman on the East Coast who has 3,000 miniature Bibles. All of them are just a tiny bit different from one another. Now, does she open them and read them? What's the fascination, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think it's different for everybody because when I was uh, in, I went to the London uh, Dolls House Festival Ah. and I got speaking to different people as to why they collected. And for some, it was memory. It was, uh, they were having houses commissioned that they used to live in as children. Um, You know, they're they're now dead parents, sort of houses that they wanted to remember. They wanted them as a sort of 3D memory. Other people, it's, they had sort of Chippendale furniture commissioned in (laughs) miniature that they could never afford in real life um and it's a mixture of um an issue of control perhaps and memory and being able to look at your entire life all in one go that you can't do in in the physical life that you have every day yeah yeah, you've kind of our, our discussion has inspired me to to put out the phone number here because there may be people in in our audience who collect miniatures and maybe they want to tell us a little bit about what the fascination is <laughs> so let me do that 651-227-6000 if you're if you collect a miniature of something and i mean miniature not just the little tonka toys but true miniatures here 800-242-2828 you can talk to me about it on twitter it's at 
Carrie NPR. You just used the word control, Jesse, and that's something that I was thinking about. It, it, it gives you this sense that you can move the pieces around at your will and that you control this world in a way that maybe your own world seems a little, little too chaotic and that you can't control. I think that's absolutely it. You you can tell a story, you can control your narrative through a doll's house, through miniatures. You are a giant in your life. And I think many of us don't feel like that. You know, situations are out of our control a lot of the time. And it can give you the illusion of having the reins and being able to, to do what you like and to lead the life you want. What was there... There was a time in history, wasn't there? And, and perhaps it's it's in the years in which you've set the novel when that miniature movement kind of hit its peak. Is, is that a fair way to say yeah. it? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, particularly in Holland and in Germany, so sort of North Europe, there was a real fashion for what they called cabinet houses, not so much dolls' houses, even though there were dolls inside some of them. And it was a kind of status symbol. It was normally wealthy people would collate uh, trinkets and treats from across the sea in their empires and put them all into this cabinet of curiosities so that their friends could come around and look at how rich they were and and it was a kind of proto facebook almost you know you put forward your best life your most perfect life and anything that you had commissioned say silk screens or porcelain from japan or whatever you would have miniaturized and put into this other cabinet and um, they were often gifted to young women on the cusp of wife or, or motherhood as sort of educational tools but i think they strayed into the adult realm of you know a hobby and a, and a collection to 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 fill your leisure time yeah you called them cabinets of curiosities and i've seen curiosity cabinet i, I saw one a scientific one in a museum in sweden is is what you're writing about and what you've seen kind of a different element of of those other cabinets where you might be you know pursuing a a career or a discipline and you were creating these cabinets that collected a lot of the things that you were interested in yeah i think the cabinet in my novel um is ironic in a way because it's supposed to be a symbol of control it's supposed to be an exercise in controlling your destiny but what actually happens is that the miniaturist of the title of the novel starts sending the main character things that she hasn't asked for and I suppose what I'm commenting on is however much you try and grab onto things to define yourself with to show off with they're always going to run away from you and uh, you know that the, the idea of this cabinet of curiosity taking on a life of its own hmm. interested me particularly yeah so so let's talk about what you saw at the Reichs Museum and how that kind of set your ideas in motion yeah. De- describe what this I, I i've seen it you know it did not obviously make the impression on me that it <laughs> made on you and good for you absolutely right um but well, what does it look like what's so striking about it it's enormous for a doll's house it's about eight feet high and it's made of oak and elm and veneered in tortoiseshell enamel shot through with pewter and it's mesmerizing and and very breathtaking because it's so intricate and intimate and yet at the same time it's so imposing it's such a sort of massive structure to have in your house and I was just really struck by it because the woman who owned it a woman called Petronella Ortman she commissioned it in 1686 it took 19 years for her to finish it and she spent the same amount of money on it as a full-blown townhouse 
And that just blew my mind. I thought, you know, what kind of person and society was she living in that condoned or maybe condemned such expenditure? And why did she do it? You know, she couldn't eat this food. She couldn't sit on these chairs. And when I learned it was an exact replica of her real house as well, that really sort of got my storytelling antennae twitching because I thought, you know, here's this really interesting character doing this strange thing. And did the society in which she lived agree with it? Or, you know, was it a private thing? Or was it a kind of act of rebellion? Or was it an act of trying to take control? Well, what do you think the answer is? Perhaps (laughs) uh, all of that in some ways? I think all of it. I mean, initially, Nella is my main character. She starts commissioning things from the miniaturist that she's not permitted in her real life. So her new family don't let her eat marzipan or sweet things. They don't let her play the lute. So she orders miniature lutes and miniature marzipan. So she's trying to kind of enjoy her life through the miniature world. But also, uh, it starts showing her things start arriving that she hasn't asked for that start almost moving of their own accord, she believes. So it's kind of a lesson that actually you can't control everything however hard you try. Yeah, in your story, unlike the the uh, the real cabinet, Petronella has been, she's quite young. She's come to yeah. Amsterdam from a rural area where everybody thinks everyone else are rubes. And, um, <laughs> and she comes to marry this wealthy older man and he gives this cabinet mm. to her as a as a gift. And she thinks... It's a monument to her powerlessness, her arrested womanhood. So, yeah. so I, I want to know how you, from there, thought about the way Petronella would develop as these events were taking place around the cabinet. Well... I mean, it was such a sort of trial and error in a way, because I had to get to know Nella myself, and I had to sort of learn how she would react in certain scenarios. And it helps me that she was always an inquisitive character and she's very brave and she's quite bold. And she I always describe her as this mixture of confidence and ignorance. And so when this cabinet house arrives and she sort of she finds it a complete insult because she knows that these houses were traditionally gifted to young girls and she feels, well, I'm not young anymore. I'm 18 and I'm a wife. So why are you giving me this doll's house? But actually it becomes a mode or a method of self-realization and a journey of understanding about actually the truth of her, her new life and the people in her new life. And so I just had to keep using the things that she was being sent by the miniaturist to develop the plot really to sort of get Nella to understand that really ultimately the destiny of her and her family lay in her hands and in nobody else's certainly not the miniaturists. Jesse did you bring happen to bring a book with you to the studio today? No I didn't. Okay all right. I'm sorry. No problem there was an excerpt that uh, I would have asked you to read, but uh, but we'll we'll oh. make do with that. No problem. <laughs> uh, the, what the excerpt kind of displays the world that you've created with yeah. with these women in this house. I mean, yes, this the story begins with Petronella coming to Amsterdam to marry this older man, but but really the world that it, her world is most influenced by these women that yeah. live in this household. And they are fascinating, intriguing characters. So how did you think about where Johannes, the husband, plays a part and where these women really influence her her life? Yeah, I suppose because you have two worlds. You have the interior 
domestic space and you have the public civic world which is predominantly well it's, it's mainly dominated by men they are they are in charge they're the judges and the sheriffs and the, the shop sellers generally and so you have this utopia I suppose or a imperfect utopia of the women in the house that Nella lives and um, Marin her sister-in-law is 32 years old and a very initially a hostile character. She seems repressive and obstructive. But actually, to me, she's one of the most tender characters in the book because she's hiding so much. And she's also trying to keep everybody's lives on the line. You know, she's trying to keep everyone safe, but it always comes across wrong. And Cornelia is the maid who, again, initially Nella is quite frightened of, but turns out to be incredibly sisterly and a very vulnerable character herself. She's come from the orphanage and this is her new family and she wants them to stay safe. And I suppose I didn't really think much initially. It wasn't a political stand to make these women incredibly 360 degrees characters, you know, capable of cruelty and uh, savagery as much as tenderness and generosity of spirit. That's to me my normal life. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I see women like that all the time. And my in another career, I was an actress and I suppose... I perhaps unconsciously created these characters because I saw such a dearth of them in the scripts I was being sent. Often the women are ciphers to the male narrative and I have, willingly or not, created lots of exciting women to read in this book who um, are not what you expect. And, I, you know, they, they must have just come from different elements of my own psyche, but I haven't dug too deep. <laughs> it, 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 it's interesting that you said that about the scripts that you get. Is that because in your life as an actress, you were mostly doing what plays from yeah. the, the classics from Shakespeare? Or are you saying that even so about the, the modern writing? I could dare to say even so with the modern yes. writing. I mean, wow. that, obviously there are obviously there are opportunities for for actresses and and it's they are growing. But you do see a predominance of men playing far more well-rounded roles, often the protagonist role. And everyone always makes a song and dance if it's the female playing the main role in a role that isn't super glamorous or dowdy, you know. And and um, yeah, I saw that all the time. It was, I would say, sort of 65, 35 to men playing the interesting characters. Definitely. You know, we uh, we do a segment here we call Screen Time where we talk about film every week. And just yesterday we were talking about the idea in Hollywood as well. And maybe you're saying this about the stage that there still is this perception that women cannot open a film that – if yeah. you're if you're gonna do a blockbuster and there's a lot on the line, you'd better have a very strong man in the lead. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I'm not quite sure where that comes. Is it based on old thinking? Is it based on well, this is just general knowledge and everybody knows this and nobody tests it? I, I don't know. What do you yeah, think? I- well, I think it's a combination. I think it's decades old. It's centuries old. It's very internalized in both men and women that, you know, natural authority stems from the male, which is so strange because I think actually on an interpersonal level, natural authority has often stemmed from the female, certainly within the home. And I, you know, I think there's economic interest always as to why a man has to lead a film. 
um it just is yeah it's quite frustrating um i'm sure for many of the actresses as well you know and it's just such a strange phenomenon that so many 65 year old men in films have sort of 30 year old girlfriends i just you know it's just <laughs> so true it's uncannily like real life um so yeah i mean i think there's just such a conservative viewpoint in in film you know big blockbuster films generally and of course independent films are plowing a completely different furrow there but um yeah it's very uh, it's very frustrating and on the stage i mean you have icon female icon of the stage in Britain, uh, Dame Judi Dench being one of them. They have yeah. not been able to make the, the enough progress on this, huh? I, I can't believe that when uh, Judi Dench is starring in a play that she can't open that play. And Well, she can. Yes. Okay. <laughs> she can. But she's the exception. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, you see, there's this thing. It's like particular women are... Um, you know, they're kind of crystallised and they're used as, well, we've got Judi Dench, well, you know, and it's absolutely, yeah, obviously she's a phenomenal actress and, you know, has had an extraordinary career and carries on having an extraordinary career. Um, but it almost seems to me that there's always just a handful of female actresses who get very sort of special uh, treatment. They get the great roles and then the rest of us can sort of go sing, whereas more men get more generalised amount of roles, if you see what I mean. Jesse Burton is with us if you've tuned in. We're talking about her new novel. It's called The Miniaturist. It's my book pick of the week. It is absolutely terrific. I didn't think I was going to like it as much as I did, but I love it. You can read about <laughs> I love it. love it when people say that. <laughs> you can read about it on the Daily Circuit page, and we're having a conversation with Jesse about the novel. Um, okay, so I just I want to read one. I've opened your book to this area yeah. that, that we were going to read from, and I'm going to read one little paragraph here. Um, it's Marin. She is the sister of the man that Petronella has come to marry. She kind of runs the household. She says to Nella, we can do nothing, Petronella, we women, nothing. Her eyes burn with an intensity Nella has never seen in her before. All we can do if we're lucky is stitch up the mistakes that other people make. She is somebody as a woman with a lot of power within that household and within the community, but she has to keep that hidden, right, from the outer world. Yeah, yeah, she does. I mean, she's unmarried, and that often, I mean, if we look at sort of Amsterdam in particular at, at that time, it was there was a sort of sense of domestic harmony being the microcosm of a greater harmony of the state, of the city. So women did have a prescribed role, which was to be the family nurturer, the mother, the cook, the household, the housekeeper. And um, unmarried women were a bit of a sort of rogue animal. You didn't really know what to do with them because, you know, they weren't they weren't participating in that civic uh, agreement. So Marin has a natural authority. She's just one of those people who can boss people around and knows how to do it. And had she been a man, she would have been a trader like her brother. She would have been a merchant. And, you know, had she been born now, she'd be the CEO of a company. I think mm -hmm. she'd probably be Sheryl Sandberg. <laughs> so um, she she's sort of one of those people who's born out of her time. And yet, during my research, I did discover that... Women in Holland did marry later than their other European really? counterparts. Really? Yeah, so average age was about 25. Hmm. And that is kind of later. And 
a lot of those lower and middle class women had to work, you know, and there's a real Dutch ethos of survival and self-realization. They literally dragged their land out of the water and made it happen. And women were part of that and they uh, would work. And when they married their husbands, they'd often sort of, if the man had any sense, he'd take on his wife's business now and they'd work together. Huh. And I have a couple in the novel who do do that. They're a confectionery couple, right. Hannah and Arnoud. Um, and, and widows as well. They were afforded a certain social status. Vermeer's mother-in-law, she was a widow. She ran her dead husband's business. So there was a certain wiggle room for me to explore okay, it wasn't perhaps as draconian for women, although, you know, publicly you had to sort of act a role. I wanted to examine what happened behind closed doors. And so I felt, yes, Marion could say to her brother, no, you're trading this sugar wrong. Come on, think about what we need to do in the long term. Whereas her brother, had he been born now, he'd be the sort of PR guy. He'd be taking the clients out on a yacht. <laughs> you know, he didn't, he's not, he's not as interested. So it's about what, happen, what happens when people are stuck in these gender roles. Right. You know, when you said that uh, unmarried women in Amsterdam in the 1600s were kind of rogue animals, I, I, I think there's still some some part of that, that even in our societies as modern as we are, and as many women, by the way, who decide <laughs> yeah. not to marry and not to have children, there's still a bit of a question mark when people view a life like that, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a sort of, you know, this, it's very interesting. It seems like being a woman is such a socially constructed thing, whereas being a man is like the sort of de facto status. So your womanly attributes are being a mother or being a wife. They're, they're just so in anciently ingrained in us. And yeah, so if you have someone who's sort of not got a wedding ring on or, you know, has actively dis d declaimed she's not going to get married or she doesn't <laughs> want children, people feel very uncomfortable because we're not taking <laughs> the new normal decisions. You know, this wiggle room that you had to deal with that you describe in, in understanding this society kind of surprises me because when you... I've been to Amsterdam and to some of the museums and you see, well, the, the, the paintings from that era and some of the, uh, the things that people had in their households. It does seem like a very restricted society. So, so reconcile f that for me. Well, it was. It was a real. Well, it was a. It was a city of contradictions because it was phenomenally rich. I mean, Amsterdam at the time was one of the most powerful cities in the world. It had an enormous empire that was stretching out to Indonesia and Japan, and then to the west towards the Carib Caribbean and, and North America, and they kind of couldn't help showing off this stuff. So, you know, they would spice their food with all the spices that they'd found. They would dye their clothes, these wonderful colours. They would decorate their houses. They would spend money on dolls' houses. You know, they'd do all of this stuff. And yet, at the same time, there was still this reactionary streak as late as the 1680s of Calvinism of saying don't be too complacent, don't rest on your laurels, remember that this isn't the best life, the best life is yet to come. And I found real little clues of this kind of hypocrisy in a way of pretending to be very pious and moral and yet not helping yourself and actually being able to indulge in, in um, luxury. And it was often women of a certain class would wear black dresses, very sober, but inside they would have lined their dresses with squirrel fur or fox fur for comfort. Mm. So on the top they looked like your good Calvinist, sort of Protestant, and underneath they were, they were um, Epicurean still. And it, it, it does seem to me a place of constant vigilance on not getting too above your station because Holland had 
um, like I said earlier, effectively shored itself up from the sea. It thanked the sea for its bounty. Thanks to the water, they could sail the ships and bring all their wealth in. And yet, in the 16th century, they had suffered two gigantic uh, tidal waves that had swept a lot of well, tens of thousands of people away. Mm. So it was actually a, a geophysical, a, a ge- geographical reality that God, as they saw it, would take away their bounty if they were to um indulgent but they couldn't help it they had they had feast days for practically every single day of the year so you know they did like to party as well yeah you know that explains why god is so ever present so near i think mm-hmm. in in these people's lives and, and i think you would find that in many of the other uh, communities of that era right in europe yeah. they, they just it seems that there was, as you say, an ever vigilance, this perception that you were being closely watched and judged. And yet, if yeah. you were careful, you could get away with a few things. Yeah, definitely. It, it seemed to me that there was, in my research, a real community feel. You know, there was sort of a family who would be in charge of the other families and everyone was sort of mutually surveilling each other. Um, but I wanted to explore, you know, the reality which must have been that people had private thoughts and private minds and I did discover you know as much as there was this um, liberality of attitude there was also this this absolutely repressive attitude towards homosexuals towards women who were not married towards black people who were brought in as as well as chattels as slaves so there was this interesting dichotomy of behavior definitely. Uh, Jesse I got some funny tweets here about when I tweeted out about the miniatures and Romy (laughs) says um I collect miniature chairs, not sure why. I love all kinds of miniatures because they're so darn cute. And then yeah. uh, and then Kyle says, I can confirm that miniature journalists are in fact rare. Ha ha, Kyle. So <laughs> funny there. If you're just tuned in, uh, we're talking with Jessie Burton about her novel, The Miniaturist. Um, she just mentioned, if, if you're listening closely, you heard her mention about the, the trade of sugar. And that is a really interesting part, historical part of the novel. So we'll talk about mm-hmm. that on the other side of news. But Phil, your, your top story now. Hi, Carrie. A federal judge has ruled BP's reckless conduct resulted in the nation's worst offshore oil spill, leaving the company open to billions of dollars in penalties. District Judge Carl Babier's ruling could nearly quadruple the amount of civil penalties for polluting the Gulf of Mexico with oil from BP's Macondo Well in 2010. Barbier presided over a trial in 2013 to apportion blame for the spill that spewed oil from April 20th to mid-July 2010. Eleven men died when the well exploded and burned. BP has already agreed to billions of dollars in criminal fines. A federal appeals court is tossing out a ruling that called into question the subsidies that help millions of low- and middle-income people afford their premiums under the president's health care law. The court says its full complement of judges will rehear a challenge to Obama administration regulations. They allow health insurance tax credits under the Affordable Care Act for consumers in all 50 states. Experts say the evidence is mixed for using infection-fighting antibodies from Ebola survivors as a treatment for others with the deadly disease, but it's worth a shot since there are no licensed drugs or vaccines available. West Africa is struggling to contain the biggest ever outbreak of Ebola. Using the blood of survivors is one of the experimental Ebola treatments under discussion at a two-day meeting beginning today in Geneva. 
Fast food restaurants in 150 cities, including Minneapolis, Detroit, Chicago, and New York, are focal points of a workers' walkout today. They're protesting low wages and want employer, uh, employers to pay them at least $15 an hour. Workers from McDonald's, Taco Bell, Wendy's, and other fast food chains are participating. More ahead on The Daily Circuit. Shootings are up by 30% in North Minneapolis over the last year. I'm Kathy Warzer. We'll explore why efforts to reduce gun violence in that area are not working. We'll have that story and, of course, all the news tomorrow on Morning Edition, weekdays from 4 to 9 a.m. I'm Tom Weber. Coming up during the 11 o'clock hour of The Daily Circuit, we'll hear parts of a conversation from Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of last month's shooting death by police of Michael Brown. That's coming up. Support for this program comes from Marvin Windows and Doors, providing windows and doors for your project with an extensive selection of styles and options designed to suit your tastes. You can find a local Marvin retailer at marvin.com. Programming is supported by the Science Museum of Minnesota, offering science education support and resources for teachers through field trips to the museums, programs at schools, and resources and training. You can learn more at smm.org schools. Today's programming is supported in part by Tom and Sharon Merritt in celebration of Tom's 70th birthday. Singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash in the studio tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Be with us for that. Back to our conversation this hour. Jesse Burton is with us. She's the author of this big breakout novel uh, called The Miniaturist. She's uh, in Minneapolis Monday, September 15th at Barnes & Noble Edina at uh, 7 o'clock. And there'll be information about that on the Daily Circuit book page where you can also read about the novel. Um, you know, I mentioned that I was reading a couple things off of Twitter, Jesse. Do you use Twitter a lot? And have you have you thought about it in a different way since you're publicizing the new novel? Um, yes, I, I, I did have a Twitter account before I got a book deal last April. And um, I just used it sort of quite eclectically before then. And um, I have to admit, I've been a bit more conscious of it since mm. um, the book came out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, it's weird. You might meet somebody and they say, oh, you've done this or that. And you think, oh, my God, of course, you know that because of Twitter, <laughs> which is obviously very naive of me. But um, yeah, I do enjoy it. And what I, I mean, generally, it's just such a, a lovely tool to be able to use because people who've read my book and enjoyed it just let me know um, and that can get me through a bad day and um, they they can ask me questions about the book and I'm more than happy to answer them so um, yeah I really enjoy it I'm, I probably am a, too addicted to it so I need to sort of wean myself off a bit <laughs> to get back to the writing on the second novel right yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know I was, I was thinking about this is having um, had your your time and and pursuing this career on the stage as an actress um, that's a pretty different identity I think than deciding that for now it's going to be about writing I, I, you know that I think of acting as an outward identity and writing as more of a a turned inward identity. How do you think about it? I don't know because I think I'm exactly the same person when I'm an actress as when I'm a writer. Really? And um yeah, I think so and I've I know many actors who are actually quite shy people and many writers who can't wait to get up on the stage and start reading their novels. So um <laughs> I mean I've always written as well as acted um and I I definitely enjoyed the sociable 
elements of acting and it was it always felt a bit easier you know you just get into a rehearsal room and someone's just making you laugh so much and if you get it wrong one night on the stage you can just forget it and do it better the next time and whereas writing does feel far more permanent and far more individual you are alone um, and you are playing all the characters but um, I don't know I think I'm very much the same person talking to you than if I were talking about a play I'd been in, to be honest. But, but you know, there are, I interview a lot of authors, there are writers mm. for whom this part of the process, and it's a necessary part, right, going out into the world and talking about your yeah. book is it the is part... these days. Yeah, well, it is, right, you have to do it. It's the part they like least. I mean, I, I, mm. I've heard, had writers say, I put it out in the wor- into the world, I said it every, everything I had to say, in the book. And this is hard to have to come out and talk about that. For you, it doesn't seem like that. Um, Yeah, I suppose it's I I agree with you. And and I know writers for whom this is anathema and they don't want to do it and and I just I mean I'm very happy to talk so I suppose that makes my life easier and my publicist's life easier (laughs) I'm just naturally a chatterbox but I I don't know I I I think it is tough it is tough for people who are shy and exactly like you say put everything in the book you know why do I need to ask or answer any more questions about it surely it's all there but it, it seems this is this social contract now that you um, are an extension of your book. Therefore, you have all the answers and you have to answer them. So it's, it's, um, it is a weird one, definitely. Well, well, the fact that you're a chatterbox makes my life easier, too, because you're a good interview. <laughs> you're a very good interview. And that makes it all easier. Um, oh, good. I, I, I want to find out what you learned about the value and preciousness of sugar in this age, because this is one of the parts of the novel mm. that I found well, that that I didn't know about. So, so how did you learn yeah. this? What'd you learn? Well, I picked sugar as the main sort of trading stock, if you like, uh, for the plot of the book, partly because um, it gave me lots of novelistic opportunities for cake and sugary things and biscuits <laughs> and this sort of idea of indulgence again, because the Dutch were pretty suspicious of sugar, because again, it was this tension between indulgence and restriction. And they had this thing called lekkerheid, which was um, sort of a fear of uh, things sweet or the craving craze, which... Um, was again this sort of madness over sugar which they'd had over tulips earlier in the 17th century and um, I just thought it was a great opportunity again to sort of highlight the the differences between sort of ostentation and deprivation and they had sugar refineries in Amsterdam and they also had refineries over in their sugarcane plantations in South America and North America Um, and I just thought it was an interesting um process really they had them sort of made into these tall conical loaves that you can see even now in Amsterdam over certain um, houses 17th century stones are still carved of men um, carving the cones yeah there's some there's still like the sign of the sugar loaves and things like that and it was a major trade you know it was like coffee Um, it, it was one of their their major trades that they they bought and sold and you know, flavoured them their tea and their cakes with, but also, of course, it was highly, highly, highly problematic because it was the cane plantations were being um, cut and run by slaves. So, you know, I don't know how much that really bothered them, but um, of course, for a 21st century uh, reader or writer, it obviously concerned me. Right. It, there's a scene where um, 
Nella goes to Johannes's warehouse where he is warehousing some of these sugar loaves for mm. some uh, acquaintances who are eager for him to sell it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad you kind of described what the sugar loaves look like because <laughs> yeah. she she goes into kind of the back of the warehouse and she uncovers the loaves and she's afraid mm. that um, what kind of mold has started to creep up on the yeah. on the sugar. Yeah, so some of the sugar has been refined before it was shipped over from the Caribbean and it's basically there are black spores on it. They're starting to go damp um, and obviously that would make them cheaper. They wouldn't be able to sell them for as high a price. But I also wanted those spores to, I suppose, be a bit of a metaphor for the moral rot that was potentially taking place in this society. And, um, you know, this these this couple, Franz and Agnes Meermans, who own the sugar plantation, they are kind of uh, a, a bit of a problematic couple in the sense that they're quite venal. They want the money. They don't really care about where the money's coming from. Um and there's Nella doing her best to try and sell the sugar to save her family. So, yeah, the sugar became very important in the book. And in an earlier draft, it was kind of taking over. My editor sort of said, Jess, I think you need to, you need to back back off a little bit from the sugar. So uh, I did my best. You know, it, 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 you mentioned the tulip fad. I was aware of that. It, it also yeah. makes you think about why we value the things that become so value. I I mean, Mm. it it wasn't, I don't think that in the tulip fad, it was that they were extremely rare. But this, there became this idea that spread through the culture that we were going to place this unusual value on these things. How'd you think about that? Well, I suppose it's sort of a proto-capitalist society. And so people have perhaps more leisure time and more money. And that sort of starts distorting things. And so that makes a tulip bulb worth the same as three houses along the most expensive part of a canal. You know, it's just sort of crazy free marketeering and um, a, a kind of symptom of people having too much time on their hands because they're so wealthy. Um, And then what happens is people who don't shouldn't be taking risks with their livelihoods getting involved too because they've got the dream of great wealth and it's all a bit of an illusion and it's all going to come toppling down and you know I did find in my research there are so many parallels with 21st century uh, developed world in Amsterdam at the time you know people with you know great wealth a small minority holding on to far too much personal wealth and silly crazies happening like tulip fever or like building cabinet houses that are the same amount of money as a full-blown townhouse you know two three four million dollar house right you know i was thinking about how much we like the illusion i mean because we we create these these fads these frenzies around all kinds of different things you know here's a silly example when the cronut came out in new york city people would (laughs) say manhattanites would stand in lines to get a cronut for you know, an hour and a half. There's something about our society that likes to create yeah. this illusion of rarity and then yeah. have that idea that I can possess that I thing. That, right. Yeah. And it's also, I suppose, it's like where they get their spiritual currency from. It's like they genuinely do feel happier for it. So that's really interesting as well, because we like to think, oh, well, people aren't really happy if they get that cronut. 
but for a while those people are genuinely happy so it's like a sort of shifting of values so it's really it is interesting you know this need to constantly create a distance between ourselves you know the haves and the have nots and to stimulate the mind really I think it's partly that you know okay my goal for today is to get a cronut you know I mean that's crazy <laughs> it's also funny to hear you say it kind of uh, now now when the craze is over it just seems yeah I mean, it's <laughs> what was pathetic. it all about right yeah okay. it's a symptom of boredom I suppose as well I guess so what do you now know about uh this is your debut novel what do you now yeah. know about <laughs> what it is to be a writer that um well I, that you didn't know going into this I just, I mean, it's it's an interesting question because I feel very much exactly the same person I was before. And I think any changes are so incremental and slow. I feel very much a newbie to it all. And when it all kind of went a bit mad and now the book is going to be published in 30 languages and, you know, it has been a bit of a crazy time. I All I wanted was to just retain as much as I could the original spirit or spark mm-hmm. in myself, if you like, that wanted to just write and tell stories um, so, I mean, I've learned that in some ways nobody really knows anything in, in terms of obviously I've met people who are extremely good at their jobs, but there's so much of it that is a bit of a gamble or a bit of an unknown quantity. And I have to just do my job, which is to write and to tell the stories I want to tell as best as I can. And I'm just quite adamant that that is what I want to do. Um I mean, obviously, I've had some amazing adventures already, um, but the most important thing is is the work. You're just as I hoped you'd be. A, a really good interview. <laughs> Jesse, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Oh, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. Jesse Burton's book is called The Miniaturist. Read it. It's featured on the Daily Circuit page, and she's in Minneapolis in uh, on September 15th at the uh, Barnes & Noble Edina. So go check that out.